listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Monday, June 3rd, 2019. And today I am joined by via Skype by Joshua H. Pollack to talk about North Korea's international scientific collaborations and what they mean. But first, a quick advertisement for NK News and NK Pro. These two subscription services are truly the greatest and most dedicated platforms on all matters related to North Korea information gathering. Please consider buying a one-year subscription and you'll see. You can save $50 off your first year at NK News by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. And and if you would like a chance to win a free subscription for one year, please leave us a review of this podcast at iTunes or wherever you downloaded this podcast. Now, to introduce my special guest today, Joshua H. Pollack is a senior research associate at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and the editor of the Nonproliferation Review, the world's only refereed journal focused on the causes and consequences of the spread of weapons of mass destruction. Previously, Joshua served as a consultant to the U.S. government, specializing in issues related to weapons of mass destruction, including proliferation, arms control, and deterrence. Thanks for joining me today, Joshua. Good to be with you. You and your uh, co-author, Scott LaFoy, released the Middlebury Institute of International Studies report called North Korea's International Scientific Collaborations, Their Scope, Scale, and Potential Dual Use and Military Significance, which came out in uh, December last year. So uh, what are we, uh, eight, no, seven months on? And I, I thought it would be helpful for our listeners if I read the little intro that I found on the website nonproliferation.org, which is, of course, run by the Mid Middlebury Institute for International Studies. Uh, and that intro, uh, quote, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has described research and development as crucial to his regime's efforts to overcome the international sanctions regime. By developing key technologies indigenously, North Korea seeks to reduce its need to import sensitive goods that might otherwise be denied to it through export controls, sanctions enforcement, or lack of funds. Direct collaboration between North Korean and foreign scientists is playing an expanding role in the regime's pursuit of technological advancement. And to assess the extent of this activity and to identify collaborative research involving dual-use technologies and other technologies of potential military significance, the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies, CNS, of the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, developed a new data set capturing publications co-authored by North Korean scientists and foreign scientists between 1958 and April 2018. That's the, uh, the intro there. So is this the first research of its kind that looks into scientific collaboration of, uh, by North Korea? No, uh, there's there's an awareness of the issue, but but it has been hovering in the background for a while. In the 2017 report of the panel of experts at the United Nations, the uh, small international group that that focuses on the implementation of North Korea sanctions, uh, there's a, a brief passage discussing uh, the universities in North Korea that are, are believed to have the most to do. With um, with weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. related technologies, and they are of course the leading universities. There's been an awareness uh, of this issue. There's a passage or two in in various sanctions resolutions touching on it glancingly. There's been uh, perhaps slightly more attention to this issue. Uh, Kim Jong Un uh, recently met Vladimir Putin at uh, Far Eastern Federal University in Vladivostok, uh, which is a a Russian university that has cooperation agreements with several leading North Korean universities now, 
there have also been occasional instances where North Korean students have gone abroad to get scientific training, and that has uh, caused a little bit of a kerfuffle. On the other hand, there, there also has been um, scientific collaboration with North Korea in the news in the last year or two uh, that, that has had, uh, I would say, a much less suspicious, much more, more positive tone to it, particularly international collaboration concerning uh, volcanology. Uh, there, there's, there's been studies of the interior structure of Mount Pictou that has involved uh, North Koreans, Chinese, Americans, and British. Uh, and that's a good example, I think, of, of the, the potential benefits, uh, huma humanitarian, scientific, and otherwise, of, of uh, scientific collaboration with the North Koreans. So it's not a cut and dried issue. There, there are pluses and minuses. That's good. Actually, I wanted to come back to those pluses later on, but let's uh, sort of put a pin in, uh, you mentioned uh, volcanology, and I'll come back to that later on. Uh, the first thing I want to ask is the data set that you used, um, how big is it and what does it actually comprise? Well, uh, you can find it uh, on our website. We, we put a link to it at nonproliferation.org. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, oh gosh, I would say... 1,300 references to mm -hmm. different articles in it. It's been a while, but if, I'm, if I remember the, the totals correctly, about 200 of the 1,300 uh, were uh, written by North Korean authors only, judging by their, their university affiliations. The other 1,100 or so involved both North Koreans and foreign scientists. Now, this is not a comprehensive data set. We um, included everything we could find, starting from as early as we could find anything, which was the 1950s, uh, through uh, April 2018 when we stopped adding to it, because we had to stop somewhere. I, I, I suspect that we missed a lot simply because a lot of the world scientific literature uh, from before a certain date is not digitized. Mm. And uh, furthermore... Even what is digitized uh, recently, uh, there, there are a lot of uh, errors in the, the indices and cataloging systems that, that try to collect all this. Uh, so uh, the, the scale of, of North Korean scientific research, at least as it is represented in foreign journals, um, we didn't look at any North Korean journals for, for, this, uh, for this study, but, but uh, in foreign journals, it is microscopic in scale. You know, finding just 1,300 items, that, that's nothing. And that's over 60 uh, years, so, right? Yeah. But even, you know, most of it is from recent years. There's been a pronounced upward trend. And again, that may have to do with digitization or it may have to do with output or a bit of both. I, I suspect it's a bit of both. But having done all that, we realized there were many, many errors in the data. Hmm. Uh, often uh, South Korean institutions would be mislabeled as North Korean. I was about to ask that. I think that must be surely one of the most common uh, uh, errors in, in any of this kind of research? Sure. Uh, anything dealing with, with North Korean interactions with the world where mm. there are large data sets, all you have to do is, is have some tiny fraction yeah. of the South Korean activity mislabeled as North Korean, and it will swamp the North Korean activity. We see this in international trade data, uh, and we see it to, to a somewhat lesser extent in, in the scientific papers. We, so how do you guard against that? Well, you have to look at each and every item. And, and you, you have to check each and every affiliation. It is a lot of work. Mm. Uh, we found that, that occasionally 
uh, Chinese, South Korean, or or other institutions were mislabeled as North Korean, and that got us thinking. And we started scratching around, and sure enough, we found that sometimes North Korean institutions were mislabeled as as Chinese or South uh-huh. Korean, and uh, we couldn't find all of those, I'm sure. We found a few, and it's enough to make the point that they're out there. Mm. What we also discovered late in our study as we were concluding it is we ran into a public profile that a North Korean scientist had put online. He had at that time 15 or 16 papers listed. We, we compared that to our data set. I think we had found 10 of them. That's pretty good, but that that shows you that it's not complete. And of course, now it, it is it is drifting gradually out of date. North Korean scientists and their foreign collaborators continue to produce papers. Wait, so are you saying that uh, there is a North Korean scientist who has a web presence and his own web page with all of his articles listed on it? More than one, yes. Goodness. And uh, are these on North Korean uh, domestic websites that are able to be viewed overseas or, or where do no, they No, these are on 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 international websites like researchgate.net. Wow. You you will find North Korean scientists there. Sometimes uh, when they have dual affiliations, such as a North Korean university and a Chinese university, they may only list the Chinese university. Uh, so it's not necessarily obvious. But if you if you are looking at the papers themselves, the papers give their full affiliations. In fact, that's the only way we can make these judgments. I couldn't tell you for sure what anyone's nationality is based on, on the data in a scientific paper, but I can tell you where they are affiliated. And that's what we work with. Now, what do we actually know about the North Korean scientific community and the type of research that it does sort of in general? A lot, actually. They publish quite a bit. However, they publish mostly inside North Korea. Uh, And it's a little difficult to get a hold of their journals. The journals do circulate abroad, but not very freely. There, there is a South Korean website that serves as a, an indexing service for North Korean scientific journals. So if you can read Korean, you can search that. It makes, makes our lives easier in studying this question. For those of us who do not know Korean or have good Korean, uh, the North Koreans, like, like uh, many other Asian scientific enterprises, uh, they do like to provide uh, translations of the, the titles and abstracts with, with their papers. So of, often you, you get the, the very, very short version uh, when you look at a North Korean scientific paper in English. Of course, unlike the South Koreans, they don't put that at the top. They put that at the bottom, which I think is a, is a, a little statement of pride, perhaps. But, but uh, it also, that it's there, shows that they, they do see themselves as part of an international scientific community. Uh, these, these journals, some of them are quarterly, some of them are monthly. Most of them go back decades. But again, it's, it can be tricky getting a hold of, of copies. They, they're simply not widely distributed. Some of my colleagues and I are, are we continue to hunt for, for copies of, of North Korean journals. It's not not always easy to find them. But in any case, they, they do exist out there, and they, they do provide a fairly vivid portrayal taken collectively of, of a, a large and active uh, scientific enterprise. The North Koreans also talk about it in their uh, news media, uh, which is is easy to dismiss as propaganda, but it does tell you a lot, including what they regard as important. And they pay a lot of attention to scientists. They profile leading scientists. They uh, describe honors given to scientists, uh, new housing built for scientists, 
they talk about uh, their leading institutions and the investments made in their facilities, uh, particularly in their libraries and, and uh, information systems. Uh, they also, when they're talking about industrial facilities, they often talk about the the um, S and T, you know, science and technology that are there for the benefit of the workers to to uh, try to raise their skills up and and uh, teach them how to use more uh, advanced machinery. And and the North Koreans continuously draw rhetorical connections between their technical universities, which is most of their universities. And the production floor of their their industrial facilities, they sometimes talk about uh, scientists being members of shock brigades that will be assigned to a particular production facility to try to implement some new production technology, upgrade it in some fashion, uh, resolve um, production problems, and so forth. So they see their scientists as being on, on the, the front lines of production and, and also of military technology. Could you tell us about the photograph that you chose to put on the front cover of the report uh, that people can download at your website? Uh, well, that was the highest resolution photograph that we could find uh, anywhere uh, documenting uh, North Korean collaboration with foreign universities. Mm. Uh, that that one happens to be from Novosibirsk University in Russia. And one of the, the North Korean figures you see there is the president of Kim Il-sung University, who also doubles as uh, the minister of higher education. And this is a fairly fairly recent uh, uh, meeting where they, they signed a cooperation agreement. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, it doesn't typify these relationships in the sense that it involves Russia. And if you wanted something truly representative, it, it would be in China. Uh, that is where the bulk of this activity, at least as it's visible to us, is taking place and has taken place in the last several years at universities all across China. But we simply didn't have a, a good enough photograph to put on the cover from China. Uh, yeah, that's interesting that uh, Russia or the, uh, the, the former Soviet Union obviously played such an important role in setting up government and scientific institutions in North Korea. But as you point out here, it's not actually one of the most represented partner countries in your study. It's not. It, it certainly is represented, but really more in the travels of university presidents signing agreements. Yeah. What we do not see are very many joint publications. Of those joint publications, would there be more than 50% from China? Oh, yes. It's about 80%, if I remember correctly. 80, wow. Uh, yes. Uh, China followed by Germany. That, that, tell us about Germany a little bit. That's interesting. There, there seem to be a handful of, of institutions and scientists there who are eager to collaborate with North Koreans, in some cases with Chinese and North Koreans. Uh, I, I don't want to speculate too much about how that came to be. It might have to do with old East German connections. But then again, uh, it might have to do with old West German connections. When you look through the North Korean scientific literature, from before a certain period, West Germany, for whatever reasons, is is one of the countries uh, whose papers tend to get cited a lot, along with the Soviet Union, the Chinese, the Japanese. Uh, the West Germans are 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 there fairly often, uh, and why that would be, uh, I can't say. I just don't know. Uh, but but there do seem to be uh, connections uh, to both of the Germanies. 
uh, from North Korea, and that persists. Uh, beyond that, I just couldn't couldn't say much. It would be be speculating. Are there uh, among the uh, the German North Korean collaborations post uh, German unification? So in the last thirty years, do do we find some of the uh, more uh, suspicious or naughty sort of you know uh, dual use or uh, nuclear weapons technology uh, research among them? Well, you won't find anything anywhere that that concerns weapons, uh, at, at least not overtly. There are uh, lines of research that uh, appear to have potential applications to either conventional weapons or weapons of mass destruction. Uh, that could be said of a number of things. We made an attempt to assess this collection of 1,300 papers. We came to the conclusion that we were not equipped to do it in within the the time uh, available to us and, and with the expertise at hand. So we took an initial swing at it. But if you look at our, our, uh, our data set, uh, you will uh, not find any judgments from us about what we considered potentially to be of concern. We did attempt to, to do um, uh, a count of that and uh, thought that maybe about 100 items in particular uh, raised some concerns for us. Uh, but of the rest, another 600 or so, we felt we just couldn't make a judgment. Uh, we, we just did not have enough time uh, and information, partly because we, we were analyzing this at the level of the abstract. We, we did not always have the opportunity to, to delve into the whole article. And, and again, you, it, it takes a lot of experts and a lot of time to, to do this kind of work. So one, although we did... Uh, identify some things we were sent, we thought were sensitive or potentially sensitive, and, and we did discuss that a bit in our report. We tried to be careful about that and, and not to be too definitive. And one of the reasons that we put put the data set out there in public is is for others to look at. We figured uh, there are other researchers who may have more resources, more time, more mm. expertise in particular specialized areas. Let's. Uh, see uh, what we can do uh, to to make this uh, a more of a crowdsourced effort. Let's go through some of the areas of concern that you flagged in your paper. Uh, I saw uh, you mentioned that uh, there was a study, uh, a collaborative study done with Romania back in the early 1990s on uranium purification. Now, that sounds like a possible problem area. What can you tell us about this? That was uh, a couple of papers that appeared just after the fall of the communist regime in Romania, the work was probably done before then. And uh, this this is well before the creation of the international sanctions regime. So while that sort of thing would be uh, forbidden today, under the sanctions regime, uh, there, there was no such rules at the time. So we included that more for historical interest than anything else. Is uranium purification, because um, I'm not really familiar with how that works, is that an early stage before enrichment of uranium? Potentially. Uh, if you are going to enrich uranium, you do have to purify it first. No doubt about that, because enrichment technologies tend to involve sensitive equipment and you can't have all kinds of contaminants um, in in the feed material. Uh, alternatively, uh, as as the North Koreans uh, were were doing already by that time, it uh, may be to create reactor fuel. Mm. In North Korea's case, they're, they're the only reactors uh, that they've ever built uh, do not use enriched fuels. So it's it there's no connection to enrichment there necessarily. 
but but it, it still is connected to to nuclear technology. Right. Now you mentioned some much more recent work with uh, China on the installation of high voltage cables for nuclear power plants. That's interesting, but that could also have an uh, innocuous uh, civilian application, couldn't it? I don't know how you want to define innocuous, but nuclear technology is dual use. It can be civilian, it can be military. The uh, Security Council resolutions, starting with uh, Resolution 1718 that was adopted in 2006, uh, prohibit uh, the transfer of dual use technologies to North Korea, at least the dual use in the sense of potentially pertaining to weapons of mass destruction. So I, I believe any, anything concerning reactor technology would be forbidden. Uh, that does not mean that it is of, of the greatest concern necessarily, but I think most observers would agree that that, that, that sort of thing is captured by, by the terms of, of the sanctions regime. No, but it, it is ultimately up to the member states to interpret the boundaries of the sanctions regime. You also uh, flagged some biological research potentially of a dual-use uh, dual character, uh, collaborations with both China and Australia. Now, as an Australian, I'm interested in this. So what, what do you know about that? Yes, there are a small handful of, of papers involving either Chinese or, or Australian collaborators uh, dealing with, with uh, research on bacteria, mm. uh, specifically organisms uh, that belong to the genus bacillus. Uh, that's a concern uh, because anthrax is in that family. And while none of this research deals with anthrax, it does deal with, with uh, relatives of anthrax that either are produced in the same manner or are, are actually used as simulants in place of anthrax in, in defensive studies. Uh, of, of the behavior of anthrax. So while uh, that's not um, obviously uh, a violation of any rules, it's, it's potentially of some concern. There are in particular also with, uh, with some Chinese scholars, what looks like fermentation technology, in other words, a growth of, of bacteria that, that as far as I can tell is dual use in character. But again, Member states have to make these own, their own determinations about what counts as dual use, for better or for worse. Could you tell us what um, United Nations or international sanctions actually say about uh, scientific collaboration and, uh, and, and paper publishing that, uh, that applies to these papers? Well, that's a good question. There are, I believe, two sections of the sanctions regime that are potentially applicable. One uh, deals with uh, the a prohibition on training and, and technology transfer. If a scientist is given uh, a visiting appointment at a foreign university and is conducting research with those foreign colleagues, how can one assure that he's not receiving information, uh, he or she, uh, that, that is of a prohibited nature? That That's a delicate business. And I know that, that some countries... Uh, have systems in place to to try to assure that arrangements of this type do not cross those lines. But I'm not equally confident uh, that every country does. China is a big question mark right now. I don't know how those systems work in China, uh, if at all. And some of the papers we saw were concerning. Uh, there also is a provision specifically uh, forbidding collaborative research, but it has a lot of wiggle room in it, a lot of flexibility. It only involves um, 
North Koreans who uh, formally represent North Korea. And I don't know what that means or why that language is there exactly. I, I guess that would mean government officials, but a university researcher, while they may be a state employee or they may receive their salary from the state because of the nature of the system, might not be characterized that way. And, and again, the member states have a lot of flexibility in deciding how to interpret that. So it's there, the one provision that specifically discusses this is very narrowly crafted. If, if there's been any enforcement of that, I'm not aware of it. There are uh, some uh, foreign governments and NGOs that invite North Koreans to, uh, to come overseas for training and further professional education, uh, not so much in the sciences, but in the areas of law, economics or finance, for example. And would these also be covered uh, by... Um, uh, sanctions against uh, skills uh, training or working knowledge and consulting services? Not that I'm aware of. As far as I know, that only pertains to dual-use technology, uh, which does include um, some advanced production technology. Mm. So it, it could have to do with, with um, specialized, uh, the design or construction of highly specialized machinery for, for producing certain sensitive goods. Uh, but I don't think that management consulting or economics or finance is, is, is within the scope here. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone tried to extend it that far. Now, there may be, there may be other prohibitions that I've not studied closely enough that, that might touch on those areas, but I'm not aware of anything like that. We hear sometimes about North Korean uh, computer programmers or coders who go to, for example, India or China for uh, uh, either education or training and, or work experience. Uh, I suppose that could fall under a dual-use technology area, couldn't it? It could, but computer science and, and even, even cyber warfare has not been incorporated under the weapons of mass destruction rubric in most international documents uh, that I can think of. The sanctions resolutions against North Korea uh, pertain to nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons and their delivery systems, if memory serves. I do not uh, believe that information technology is, is touched on there. In fact, in some interactions with uh, American academics, I believe there has been some discussion of library science, which is an allied field uh, of computer science. Uh, but I don't think there are prohibitions in place on that. Now, in the six or so months since your paper has been published, has it received any strong or urgent support in terms of raising concerns with the UN Security Council or with countries and institutions mentioned in the report? I have had a number of conversations uh, with, with uh, other researchers who are interested in it. Mm. Uh, I cannot say uh, if there are governments or international bodies that are prepared to take action on this. Uh, given the preliminary nature of the research, clearly there's a lot of homework to be done before anything like that could happen. I would be hard-pressed to point to more than a sprinkling of items in this data set and say, this, this is a violation. So that kind of judgment, I think, has to be made with a lot of analytic firepower behind it, uh, and and uh, that's something, of course, that that certain governments have at their disposal, uh, and and uh, and and a few international agencies that that uh, are are in the 
nonproliferation business, uh, like like the International Atomic Energy Agency or the Organization for the the Prohibition of of chemical weapons. Let me put it this way: I I don't know where these issues rank on the agenda for those organizations. It's my hope that the release of this report will help uh, raise the profile of these, of these issues. And these issues have, again, they've been out there for a while. There's been some discussion of it. Our entire line of inquiry was uh, really sparked by a, an article in, in, I think, September of 2017 in the Wall Street Journal concerning a single scientific paper that came out of China that had an, a North Korean co-author. They did a, a really um, marvelous job of, of digging into that one paper which concerned space technology. And uh, I thought, this can't be the only paper like this. And so that's how we got started on this. But that goes to show you that this this area has been a, an area of simmering concern for a little while now. Yeah, okay. So basically, you'd just like to uh, raise the profile of the issue and have more people talking about it than have been in the past. Right. And and of course, to, to create a resource for them. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's why the data set is there. That's that's right. As you mentioned, it's a uh, uh, it, it's an openly accept. Pardon me. It's an openly accessible uh, Google spreadsheet that anybody can go to and look at, and so uh, that makes it uh, a public resource. Right. They can download it. They can tinker with it to their heart's content. Fantastic. Uh, can you tell us anything about the uh, the research that you're currently working on? Well, uh, uh, North Korea continues to be uh, one major focus area for me and for a number of my colleagues. This is an area that uh, the Center for Nonproliferation Studies has been focusing on for the last few years with, with uh, uh, an increasingly intense focus for, for the simple reason that so very little is, is known about it. And it's a matter of such uh, high public concern in the United States and beyond that we felt uh, that our public education mission made it important for us to to really bear down on this issue uh, and to to be able to, to the extent possible, fact check the claims of government officials, to try to help the news media um, provide a more um, informed view, and to to do new research and, and uh, to create resources like this one. Uh, recently, some of us uh, authored a, a paper on the requirements of a verifiable missile freeze in North Korea, which uh, was was graciously sponsored by the Korea Foundation. Uh, and this was an effort to, to use our background knowledge on arms control and disarmament verification and, and try to apply historical experience to the current issue set in North Korea. We, we asked ourselves if uh, the North Koreans agrees, agreed to freeze certain missile-related activities, and, and we, we set out on this path uh, when diplomacy was just getting started. Uh, then how uh, could that be verified? How could it be done on a minimally intrusive basis that would be most acceptable to the North Koreans while providing the greatest level of information and reassurance to other countries? While we wound up delivering uh, this, this paper in April, of this year with North Korea not having tested a missile since uh, at the time, since uh, November of 2017, it was just um, 
a week or so later that they went back to missile testing. So I think that the the, the relevance uh, turned out to be lurking there all along. And I hope that policymakers who are interested in this problem will be able to take the menu of options that, that we identified and to consider them uh, in their own planning and thinking, uh, because the current deadlock is, is not terribly healthy. And, and uh, a, a return to a, a freeze on missile-related activity, whether it is testing or whether it is other activities as well, uh, would be greatly beneficial. Uh, we did not offer, in the end, uh, a specific recommendation about what the ideal or optimal freeze uh, package looked like, uh, in part because we don't know what the United States and other governments are willing to offer the North Koreans in exchange. And as a rule, you will get more if you give more. Uh, so instead, we, we identified uh, several different options and talked about uh, the, the uh, advantages and disadvantages involved with them, how realistic they are or not. Uh, and that, I hope, offers uh, policymakers uh, a set of tools uh, that, that they can use as they see fit. Great. Could you tell our listeners where they can find this and all your other research papers? These papers are at nonproliferation.org. They are both in the Occasional Papers series, mm -hmm. which is a, uh, an internal CNS uh, series. Uh, you can also find other publications of ours uh, and information about the Nonproliferation Review, which is our peer-reviewed scholarly journal. Uh, I encourage everyone to poke around the website. It, it has uh, all kinds of great resources. Excellent. Well, that's great. We certainly will put a link up uh, together when this podcast goes up. So thank you very much for your time uh, today or uh, on your side, I should say, this evening, Joshua. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. Not at all. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and neighbors. Thank you and listen again next time. Costs involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.